We are live outside the UK Houses of Parliament this morning and I want to bring it back to the top story that we are following this morning. A huge win for the Conservatives in Britain's general election. Labour suffering its worst defeat in decades. Party leader Jeremy Corbyn already said he won't lead the party in the next general election, but he's given further comments in the last few moments. Listen in. Obviously very sad at the result we've achieved and very sad at those colleagues that um, lost their seats in the election and very sad for many people in this country who will now have a government that is uh, continuing policies of austerity and many of the poorest communities I think will suffer very badly from the economic strategy that I suspect the Prime Minister will take forward. But also I have pride in our manifesto that we put forward and all the policies we put forward which actually had huge public support on issues of universal credit, the green industrial revolution and investment for the future. But this election was taken over ultimately by Brexit and we as a party represent people who both voted remain and leave and my whole strategy was to reach out beyond the Brexit divide to try and bring people together uh, because ultimately the country has to come together. So what went wrong? Well, those in leave areas in some numbers voted for Brexit or Conservative candidates which meant that we lost a number of seats and we didn't make the gains that I'd hoped we could have done particularly in the uh, Midlands and Yorkshire in the north. I was listening to some callers to RBC this morning and speaking to people who are knocking on doorsteps and the same from the Shadow Health Secretary before the election saying the same thing that actually you're part of the problem. Is, this, is now time to accept that perhaps your leadership may have contributed to this result? Well, I've done everything I could to lead this party, done everything I could to develop its policies and since I became leader the membership has more than doubled and the party has developed a very serious, uh, radical yes, but serious and fully costed manifesto and uh, I've received more personal abuse than any other leader has ever received by a great deal of the media. Now, that happens all the time. Um, I will talk to our national executive about um, what we do in the future. I called for last night a period of reflection in the party and obviously the ruling body of the party, our national executive, will decide um, what process we follow then for the election of a successor to me. But I am quite prepared and I was elected to do so to lead the party until that takes place. Is that some of those voters mentioned things like sympathising with the IRA, anti-Semitism, failing to deal with it, making a party that's too London-centric and ultimately being too left-wing. Again, do you not accept that those are part, some of the things that have attached themselves to you that have made you less electable? Is ending universal credit and paying the WASPy women and having a green industrial revolution too left-wing, they are huge issues that face our country and I think our manifesto did face up to all of that. Of the attacks that have been made on me, I have dealt with the issues that have been raised. I inherited a system that didn't work in the Labour Party on anti-Semitism. I introduced the rule changes necessary to deal with it and they are in operation. But I think anti-Semitism is an absolute evil curse within our society and I would always condemn it and always do and always will. Once again, uh, the left, if you, if when Labour's gone further to the left, as it did under Michael Foote, they've lost badly. 
the Conservatives. Do you think that Corbynism is dead? It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. There is socialism, there is social justice, there are radical manifestos, all of which are um, there. But are they um, also unelectable? No, I don't think they are unelectable at all. I think the issue that dominated this election ultimately was Brexit. Our policies, uh, I've named some, there are many, many others I could name, were actually all of them individually very popular. There was no, and there was no huge debate or disagreement in the party about any of the policies in our manifesto. The issue was, ultimately, the Prime Minister said he's going to get Brexit sorted. It is, um, how should I put it, a mirage of nonsense because he knows perfectly well that he's either got to get an agreement with the European Union or he's going to spend seven years negotiating with the United States and I'm worried about the effect on our manufacturing industry and our trading position in that period. You don't think a more centrist David Miliband kind of character could have done better, could have beaten Boris Johnson? I don't think the result would have been any different because we have to um, make an appeal to people who voted both leave and remain. And we appealed to all on a manifesto which would bring about more social justice in this this country. And uh, I am proud of the campaign that we fought, the effort that I put into that campaign, and the effort that hundreds of thousands of people did who saw... In what we were saying, particularly a lot of young people saw in what we were saying some hope for themselves, some future where they wouldn't go into debt just because they wanted an education. Some of your MPs have, have turned on you, as, uh, or your candidates who didn't get elected. I'll just quote one uh, prominent Labour Party figure, Alan Johnson, who, said, who summed up some of the feeling when he said, I want momentum gone. Um, he made it, made it sound like it was a kind of parasite that had sucked the electability out of the party. Um, do you uh, accept that momentum has been this kind of internal party within a party? And how do you feel about Alan well, Johnson asking for it to... Well, I, I don't agree with Alan Johnson on this, and there are many candidates um, who are not necessarily on the left of the party who were very grateful and very happy for the support that Momentum supporters gave them in the campaign. And Momentum is an organisation of lots of people of actually quite a wide range of political views. They see themselves as an activist base. They see themselves as people that are organising communities and community action in our society. I think that's actually a very healthy democratic development and it's a different style of doing politics but I think what we've shown over the past uh, four years since I became leader this growth in membership and this growth of community activism actually is healthy for politics and healthy for democracy and uh, I regret those kind of comments because I think they're very unfair. Do you feel at all guilty that Boris Johnson's got another five years at number 10? Do you feel at all responsible and guilty for that? I did everything I possibly could to win this election. I did everything I possibly could in order to bridge the divide between those that voted leave and those that voted remain. Because at the end of the day, they're going to live in a country where we're going to need that investment for the future. We're going to have, if this government stays in office, more homelessness, more divisions, and more a bigger gap between the richest and the poorest. And so 
I did everything I could. Of course, I take responsibility for putting the manifesto forward, but I have to say the manifesto was universally supported throughout our party and throughout our movement. So, as I said in my own count result last night, we don't give up on the eternal hopes of a more decent society and the urgent demand to make our contribution for a sustainable world. And that's exactly what our manifesto, our Green Industrial Revolution, would have done. You talked about last night a period of reflection um, uh, before you stand down. You wouldn't lead the party into another general election. When, when are you planning on standing down? Well, the National Executive will have to meet, of course, um, in the very near future, and it's up to them. Uh, they'll make that decision, not me, but what I hope is there will be a period when we can have a good discussion within the party, and I think that's healthy and that's to be very welcome, and I hope um, those that were inspired by our manifesto will actually join the party and take part in that discussion, and it's up to them to set a programme for when an election will take place. It'll be in the early part of next year. It's quite often leaders stand I mean, down straight away after a general election defeat like this. I mean, this is a catastrophic defeat. You, many people would expect you to step down straight away. I was elected to lead the party, and I think the responsible thing to do is not to walk away from the whole thing, and I won't do that. I will stay here until there has been somebody um, elected to succeed me, and then I will step down at that point. Um, you talked about um, being misrepresented. Do you feel you've been misrepresented in the media? Yes, absolutely. In when you way? look at... Um, if you analyse the coverage that's made of the Labour Party, you analyse the coverage that's made of me, you're looking at in the 80% and above of negative, hostile or frankly just downright abuse um, of individuals and character assassination and constant um, attacks on me and my family and others. And I just think we need to have some consideration of the effect this has on politics when the whole of political debate is seen through the prism of personal abuse and personal attacks. I never indulge in personal abuse or attacks. I never attack anybody personally. And the words I've often used is, I won't get into the gutter because I think our lives and our politics is too important for that. Just two more questions. When the history books uh, declare whether Jeremy Corbyn was for or against remaining in the EU, what should they say? I hope the history books will say he's somebody that did campaign to remain in the referendum in 2016. We all know what the result of that was. And that after that, what I tried to do was negotiate an agreement with the EU so that we could have either remain or leave, but leave with a trade relationship with Europe. What I don't want to see is this country cut off from the continent of Europe because of the obvious trading relationships and all the personal and family relationships there are because I think for us to become a sort of offshore tax haven of Europe would be a very, very retrograde step and we cannot allow ourselves to become some sort of um, trading arm of the United States on the shores of Europe either. Who should be your successor? I'd call that a poised but defiant Labour Party leader there, Jeremy Corbyn, saying and admitting that for many Labour voters they were on the wrong side of this UK leaving the EU debate and that many of them wanted to see the UK leave but refusing to acknowledge that the shift left in economic policy for this party was a turn-off for many voters too and saying he did everything he could to win this election. Now, a constituency that was once resolutely Labour, Dudley North in the English Midlands, has gone blue for the first 
time in its history. Earlier this year, the Labour MP quit the party and then urged the people to vote Conservative. Our Matthew Chance has been uh, talking to people there in Dudley and he joins us live. Matthew, I know you were listening to that. I can't help but feel for Labour MPs listening to that, for people in Dudley, voters, Labour, traditional Labour voters. They just have their head in their hands. He's got to understand what went wrong here. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, and, and to hear Jeremy Corbyn talk about how this was just about Brexit and nothing to do with his personal uh, leadership, I think it's just, it just really grates when you, you speak to ordinary people like I've been speaking to here in Dudley uh, North, a constituency that has been traditionally a Labour Party voting constituency. And for the first time yesterday, the first time ever, it returned a Conservative uh, politician for, as its member of Parliament. Yes, it's a Brexit voting area. 72% of the people in this area voted for Brexit, but that's not the only reason. And they were very upset, by the way, that the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn wanted a second referendum. They weren't enamoured with that at all. But that wasn't the only reason. There was something about Jeremy Corbyn's sort of personal uh, uh, leadership that, that sort of pushed them over the line into the Conservative Party. I was going to speak to uh, some of these traders here. You can bring over here. We've got, we've got Mike over here. Mike, sorry to interrupt your business. You're making, you're selling me some cakes. We were talking about how, uh, you know, Brexit wasn't the only reason that people in Dudley didn't choose Jeremy Corbyn. What, what else was it, do you think? I think it was down to his personality. I think it was down to his uh, policies and his throwing money without actually adding up any of the sums and being able to promise things that he just simply couldn't deliver without bankrupting the country. But a lot of it was down to Jeremy Corbyn's personality and I don't think people actually genuinely believed he was fit to run the country. Well, yeah, Boris Johnson's personality as well. You know, not everybody's in love with him here, are they, to be, to be clear? No, they're not, but I think a lot of people would have voted to do anything to prevent a Corbyn government. Mike, thank, thanks very much. There you have it, you know, so you're saying Brexit's a big deal, but, you know, also just that personal leadership of Jeremy Corbyn pushed this constituency and other constituencies all over the Midlands and the north of England in Wales from lead, red to blue. Back to you, Julia. Yeah, Matthew Chancer, thank you so much for that. And actually, just to reiterate, he said that manifesto was universally supported, of course. Wow, it's going to be an interesting few weeks, I think, for the Labour Party. But in the coming minutes, we are expecting a further statement from Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I've got a live shot for you as the red carpet gets rolled out. Boris Johnson set to speak in the coming hour. We will take you there live when we get it. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. Stay with CNN. Plenty more to come. to first move live from the Houses of Parliament. Investors showing relief thanks to Boris Johnson's landslide victory, but British business has been slightly more cautious. This is the initial comment from one of the industry's biggest groups. Campaign slogans must give way to a renewed focus on the details that matter. Our business communities need to see swift, decisive action to avoid a messy and disorderly exit from the EU and to tackle the barriers holding back investment and growth here in the UK. That comment was from Adam Marshall, Director General of the British Chambers of Commerce, and he joins me now. 
You're still worried about a disorderly exit from the EU. It's hard to believe that we're sat here in December 19 still talking about it, but there's got to be some swift action over the next few weeks to prevent it, and indeed to prevent businesses from facing further cliff edges down the line. Companies are asking some really valid questions about how they prepare to trade in future, uh, how they prepare to move people around, etc., and they need answers to those over the coming weeks. Boris is still not ruling out going back to WTO rules, i.e. not reaching any kind of an agreement on a, a trade deal next year with the EU. Do you want him to rule that out and say, look, even if we have to extend here by June, by the end of June, that's a better option for business because then they get three years clarity, not another cliff edge potentially at the end of December. Well, the biggest priority for our businesses is getting the future relationship with the EU right. Uh, the time that that takes, uh, you know, we need to be flexible on that, I think. Uh, businesses are going to need to change the way they trade across borders. They're going to need to change the way they move people around, what regulators they work with. And we still have a huge list of 24 unanswered questions where businesses still need that detail. So if it takes a little bit more time, get it right. Don't just do it fast. We haven't got the Northern Irish question and the border there sorted either. I mean, that's going to be a potential huge issue too for the EU and products coming in and out and the risks that they can enter the UK or leave the UK and enter the EU. Um, without being vetted and without being checked. Well, this again is one of those areas where details are so hugely important. Our business community in Northern Ireland has actually been raising the alarm on this for the past few weeks. They're concerned that they're going to have new paperwork and new admin costs, whether they're trading within the United Kingdom right. or trading on the island of Ireland. Um, anything that adds to business admin time, resource time, etc., creates new costs. And that in turn determines whether businesses invest or not. What about policy in the interim though? Because Boris, Johnson did promise if he got back into power, he'd have tax breaks for research and development, tax breaks for construction and industry that's ground to a halt here in the UK in many regards, particularly on the commercial side. Um, is this going to be enough to galvanise business? Tax cuts for smaller businesses in the UK. He's kind of saying all the right things, but to your point, action has to follow. Well, we had a manifesto that was extremely light on detail. So what businesses are going to want to see over the next couple of weeks are those promises in black and white in things that they can actually action. So we've got the problem of business rates, business property taxes here in the UK, which are really stopping investment for a lot of businesses. Mm. And so many other issues besides. Uh, if you cut the upfront cost of doing business in this country, I think you will see a lot more investment. So there needs to be swift action from the incoming government in order to do that. I wanted to get really excited about the investment potential of the UK because I've had many conversations with international investors who say the UK is simply uninvestable at this stage. Are you still saying, look, uh, you know, the doors are creaking open perhaps for business, but they're, they're not open yet. Well, th this is an amazing country and we've got great potential. Uh, I think a lot of investors will come back here if we get the business environment right. So when the politicians return to the building behind us next week, I really want them to turn to the economy first. Our business communities are saying put the economy first, really start doing some things both symbolic and deep that make it easier to do business in the UK. Do you trust Boris to do that? I, I think we have to trust the government and the party in power to take Take those actions. We have a great majority now, a very, very significant majority for that party in power. Uh, they have the decisive uh, action that they need in order to move ahead with it. They've, they've got to do it. They've got the numbers. There's nothing to hide behind. <laughs> Adam Marshall, great to have you with us, the Director General of the British Chambers of Commerce. Thank you so much for that. All right, next, we'll be taking you to D.C., where a House panel is gearing up to approve the impeachment articles against President Trump. A live report from Capitol Hill, straight after this.
is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back to First Move outside the UK Houses of Parliament. But now we go to Washington, where the House Judiciary Committee is set to approve the articles of impeachment against President Trump just this morning and send them to the full House. Today's vote comes after more than 14 hours of intense debate on Thursday. Suzanne Malveaux is live on Capitol Hill with all the details. Suzanne. We're just 40 minutes away from uh, the House Judiciary Committee, again, reconvening this morning for that very crucial and historic vote. As you mentioned last night, I mean, the, the gas were audible. You had uh, howls of anger inside the House chamber as uh, the chairman, Nadler, uh, gaveled to a close uh, that session, that marathon session that lasted 14 hours. Republicans just furious over that call. Democrats quite pleased. A senior Democratic aide saying, look, this is a matter of transparency in the process for the American people and the rest of the world. The committee is in recess. Chairman. House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler abruptly ending more than 14 hours of fierce debate, pushing the committee's historic vote on articles of impeachment to 10 o'clock this morning. I want the members on both sides of the aisle to think about what has happened over these last two days and to search their consciences before we cast our final votes. Republicans leaving the hearing outraged. They do not care about rules. They have one thing, their hatred of Donald Trump, and this showed it tonight because they want to shine in these cameras, get prettied up, and then vote and make it all happen. This was the most, I'm just beyond words at this point. Democrats say they want Americans to see the vote. We want to do it in broad daylight, so first thing in the morning, so um, everyone can see exactly what's going on. Lawmakers battling over the two articles during the marathon debate, arguing whether the president abused his power and obstructed Congress. There are no crimes here. The president committed the highest crime against the Constitution by abusing his office. That is just a Democrat drive-by to go and list crimes that you don't allege and that you don't have evidence for. This is about their concern that they can't they can't win next year based on what the president has accomplished. To protect this president at any cost is shameful. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says top Democrats aren't working to lobby votes, with at least two party members stating they'll vote against impeachment. This is a vote that people will have to come to their own conclusion on, and uh, the facts are clear. But House Republican leaders are working to make sure their opposition is unanimous. I don't think there's a need to whip the vote. The full House could vote on the articles next week. Meantime, the White House is preparing for an impeachment Senate trial in January, meeting with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to create a game plan. Sources tell CNN that McConnell stressed a quick trial to the president in a phone call. Despite conflict between the GOP Senate leader and Trump over the trial's format, there's one point where they agree. The case is so darn weak coming over from the House, there's no chance the president's going to be removed from office. So today, expect some of that anger to continue to spill out into the process here as Republicans express their displeasure with having this whole thing postponed to the next day. Uh, what you will see happen, how it will play out, a likely a possible roll call to a substitute amendment, and then you would have procedural uh, maneuvers that could delay this even further, but not likely that it will take as long as it did yesterday. You will have that historic vote later on this afternoon, and they are very confident that they'll have the full House vote for articles of impeachment potentially as early as Wednesday, Julia.
we shall watch for that, Suzanne Marveau. And of course, we will bring you that vote later on today as we get it. And what's been a week of highs and lows for Donald Trump. China is about to hold a briefing on a possible phase one trade deal with the United States. Sources tell CNN the US and China have reached an agreement. David Culver is live in Beijing with all the details. David, I have to say we've had one or two false starts, but it does look like at least as far as phase one is concerned, this could be the real deal. And this press conference that's just a few minutes away, Julia, is perhaps another indication that we're getting closer to seeing ink with this deal. The reality is the Chinese have been very tight-lipped about this. They have been very restricted about what they say. Most of the leaks have been coming out of Washington, the U.S. side of things. And quite frankly, they're hesitant because of something similar being put in place, a handshake-type deal back in October. And it was supposed to be signed a month later, in mid-November. And here we are now into December, and we're talking about yet another agreement on similar issues. So it has been hammered out in specifics that the U.S. will be uh, able to sell agricultural products to China, a certain amount. China will agree to buy billions worth, perhaps the 40 to 50 billion that President Trump has pushed for. That's important for his constituency. As for China, they will in turn see um, some of the halt in tariffs. In fact, there was a big set of tariffs supposed to go into effect on Sunday. That was the consumer goods one. That will be delayed, according to uh, those who are familiar with this deal. And then this is huge. There will be a rollback on existing tariffs, as much as half. That has been a big sticking point for the Chinese. They've been pushing that for several weeks now, and and several op-eds in Chinese state media have certainly stressed that. What's interesting about that point is that's something that Donald Trump has faced some opposition on from other lawmakers, China hawks in particular. Senator Marco Rubio has come out saying that the White House should keep those tariffs in place and should go forward with Sunday's tariffs. He says those are really the only way that they can have leverage in the ultimate trade war with China. They're looking at this as a comprehensive thing beyond phase one. The concern for some is the technology aspect of this, the geopolitical aspect, the ideological aspect. So it's far bigger than this trade. But right now, it seems that the trade one portion, the phase one portion, based really around trade, is coming to maybe some sort of agreement, hesitancy all around. In fact, it was interesting, Julia, this morning here in Beijing, we heard the foreign minister, who coming off news out of Washington that there might be an agreement, spoke against the U.S., lashed out against the U.S., said that it's the U.S.'s fault that there's this erosion of trust between China and the U.S. So to have that kind of tone going into this phase one, It's not really speaking very positively as you look towards those structural changes that would be part of a phase two or a phase three. Mm. And it certainly doesn't suggest that those would come to fruition anytime in the near future. Yeah, but I love the point that you make about the trade-offs here over removing tariffs or rolling back some of those tariffs, which China ultimately demanded. You just have to wonder whether the timing here with what's going on back in D.C. made President Trump go, OK, we'll capitulate here to get the deal done. Going to be fascinating to see the details. David Culver, right. thank you so much for joining us on that story. All right, we're going to take a quick break now, but coming up, a crushing defeat. A look at why the British electorate turned their backs on Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. That's coming up. Stay with CNN.
warm welcome to a special edition of First Move, coming to you live from Abingdon Green in London. A historic day for the UK and the nation's future outside of the European Union. A sweeping victory for Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party. And I tell you what, UK assets are loving it. Markets, we always talk about this. They like certainty. And this result virtually guarantees an exit for the UK on January 31st of 2020. UK stocks, the FTSE 100 you are looking at right now, higher by more than 2% among the biggest gainers, the banks, the utility. We could argue all those under the threat of nationalisation if the Labour Party had somehow won the day, but I just think they were under a broader Brexit cloud. The pound also rallying to up over 1.6% right now, adding to the gains that we've seen in recent sessions, now at its highest level in over a year and a half. What about European stocks also joining in what feels like a broader relief rally here? Let's take a look at the United States as well, because it's not just the only story. We're just off their best levels pre-market as we await fresh details of a possible phase one trade deal between the United States and China. It's all happening. Sources tell CNN that President Trump has signed off on this phase one deal as part of that agreement. The U.S. will delay tariffs on Chinese goods, on further Chinese goods that were set to kick in this weekend. Existing tariffs apparently will also be lowered in exchange for a Chinese agreement to purchase more U.S. farm goods. China is expected to hold a briefing on all the details soon. More on that later in the show. But first, let's get to our top story. High drama in high office. The Conservatives get to celebrate as Labour's Jeremy Corbyn suffers a crushing defeat. The British Prime Minister gets to stay in number 10, his Conservative Party winning an absolute majority in Thursday's general election. But now the hard work really begins, including getting the UK out of the EU. As the nation hands us this historic mandate, we must rise to the challenge and to the level of expectations. And Parliament must change so that we in Parliament are working for you, the British people. And that is what we will now do, isn't it? That is what we will now do. Boris Johnson has made his way to Buckingham Palace earlier this morning to see the Queen to get that fresh mandate. Let's go live to CNN's Max Foster. Max, I don't think that we can just overplay enough, actually, the scale of the win here for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, the number of constituencies here that have legacy voting for the Labour Party that simply switched and have put their trust in Boris Johnson here. Yeah, that's the point, isn't it? These um, Brexit-supporting Labour supporters traditionally in these constituencies have switched to Conservative. It may not be a long-term thing, but it certainly um, gives authority to Boris Johnson's central campaign message, which was get Brexit done. There's no doubt that that was his main message and he's been voted in and it's a big vote. Therefore, he has support for his Brexit plan. Uh, so the whole idea of a Brexit referendum has gone away. Uh, Remainers now, it seems, except uh, certainly in England and Wales, uh, that Brexit 
is going to go ahead and on Boris Johnson's terms. Remember, he wasn't ever looking for a hard Brexit. It was always going to be a managed Brexit, a deal that was negotiated with the EU. He's going to head towards that now at the end of January. We do have to caveat, though, don't we, uh, Julia? Um, Nicola Sturgeon's success overnight as well. Uh, her party, the Scottish Nationalists, now dominate Scottish politics and they're firmly remain and they are using that as part of their campaign towards independence which is a big issue a potential constitutional crisis so there is still a remain feeling and it's being focused in Scotland though the, the, the economic heavyweight of England certainly on the way out yeah, you make such a great point. For, for Scotland here, if they don't get their way to remain in the EU, they'll try and go their own way and do it as an independent nation here. Max, to your point, though, let's just talk about the next few weeks because we now have 48 days, I believe, until January the 31st when Boris Johnson has promised ultimately that the UK will leave the EU. But then the real fun and games start and the negotiations with the EU. How comfortable should he be at this stage that he can fulfill his manifesto promise and actually sign that trade deal before the end of 2020. Well, I think uh, what, you know, everyone wants some sort of solution to Brexit. We do have some sort of solution now. It is that Britain is going to leave the European Union at the end of January. As you say, there is this now year-long process about trying to reach some sort of trade agreement. Uh, if there is motivation on both sides, it does seem as though that can be done. It's really a technical uh, matter, but, it, you know, it's a mammoth task, isn't it, negotiating some sort of trade deal like this. But there are sort of rough agreements, you know, around... <laughs> Uh, between the countries already, so perhaps the progress can be made. It's worth pointing out that Boris Johnson tweeting overnight as well that Brexit will pave the way to a US-UK trade deal, which would be even bigger than the EU one. Uh, so in terms of international economy and politics, this is a really, really significant moment. But the momentum is behind Boris Johnson. It will be tough getting that trade deal together, uh, but he couldn't be a, in a better position than he is right now. I agree with you. The honeymoon period and on those trade deals, we shall believe it when we see it. Max Foster, thank you so much for joining us. All right, let's move on into the markets now. The pound soaring to an 18-month high, its biggest jump in some two years. The broader FTSE 250 also hitting records. This, of course, UK-focused firms rallying. Multinational firms, though, based in the UK. The FTSE 100 pulling back slightly here. Claire Sebastian joins me now. We always have to make the point, Claire, with the, the FTSE 100, 70% of the revenues of these companies generated outside of the United Kingdom. So when the pound goes up, then that suppresses their foreign earnings. But talk us through what we're seeing here, because there is relief in these markets. Absolutely. That relief, Julia, magnified by the fact that the, the drag of the stronger pound today is limited. Let's take a look uh, at some of the biggest winners on the markets today. Banks, as you were saying, uh, they are soaring in, in some cases double digits. We're also seeing big gains uh, among home builders. All of this on the prospect, uh, according to analysts, of rising consumer sentiment, possibly rising inflows of, of capital investment. There you see RBS up 11.5%, Taylor Women.
Olympi, which is a big home builder, up 14 and almost 15%. Uh, but on the flip side, as you were saying, it's not universal gains on the FTSE 100 today. We are seeing uh, the drag on some of those big uh, multinational companies, the likes of GSK uh, and Unilever. Now, having said that, this is under 1% in terms of declines here. So, so the gainers uh, far outweighing uh, the losers today on the FTSE 100 off the back of this result. This is a lifting, Julia, for the markets of a big layer of uncertainty. But going into 2020, there are questions remaining on the budget in February. How much stimulus will be? How will that play into consumer sentiment? And, and on the length of the transition, will there be uh, an extension? That is something the markets are digesting this morning. Yeah, markets don't like uncertainty and the idea that we cannot see a cliff edge in the next three, six months is a real relief. It does give you a sense, though, Claire, when you, you look at the performance of the financials here, just how reticent investors have been to get involved in UK assets here because of this Brexit cloud. Yeah, absolutely. This has been a major cloud hanging over. I think you can look at the pound, Julia, as a barometer uh, in some ways of, of Boris Johnson's Brexit fortunes over the past two months. It's, it's now up about uh, the best part of 10% since he reached that breakthrough with the EU uh, in October. But it is still down the best part of 10% since before the Brexit referendum three and a half years ago. So there is still a Brexit discount uh, baked in. And analysts are saying that, that because of these overhangs going into next year, because of the, uh, the budget issue, because of, of what will happen with, with an EU-UK uh, uh, trade deal and because uh, of what could happen potentially uh, if Boris Johnson extends the transition, that will limit the upside, at least for the moment. Yes, what may or may not happen over the next 12 months. Thanks to uh, Claire Sebastian there. Let's talk about that then. This election was closely watched, of course, in Brussels, where European leaders are seemingly as keen as Boris Johnson to get Brexit done. Melissa Bell is there for us. Melissa, would you agree with that, actually? Brexhaustion, not only here in the UK, but also over in Brussels. And could that facilitate some kind of deal over the next six to 12 months? Um, there is definitely a sense of relief here, Julia, but also so many questions about what comes next. And that's really what we've heard from the leaders emerging from the European Council meeting here today. Both the leaders of the European countries and the incoming European administration that find, in a sense now, the tough part begins and a lot depends on what kind of deal is struck. We were just hearing from Claire there a moment ago about those remaining uncertainties that weigh on the market. And that is because when you look at the vast array of, of solutions, of agreements or non-agreements that might emerge from the forthcoming negotiations with the EU, uh, there are so many different possibilities for the kind of relationship that the UK will have with its former EU partners uh, once that is done. There is, of course, the question of the time frame. And then we don't exactly know how keen Boris Johnson is to negotiate an extremely close trading deal. There is an option, of course, that allows the UK to stay very close to the EU and can you continue benefits from its markets, uh, but that will require him to ensure that level playing field that you're going to hear an awful lot about from European leaders over the course of the next few weeks. That is that he continues to stick with the regulatory framework that really ensures that the uh, companies with which he's trading in the EU will not feel that he's undercutting them, that he is undercutting their markets. Uh, so that would be on one extreme. You also have another extreme, which is over the course of the next year, and this is what people are saying already, if he sticks that timetable of this transition period ending at the end of next year, it is really a fairly 
bare-bones free trade agreement is the best he can hope for. Then there is the possibility that there will be no agreement at all and they will go back uh, to the sort of WTO rules that govern uh, the relationship, the trading relationship between countries that don't have the kind of agreements that the EU and the UK had. So there is a vast a uh, scenario of uh, of different possibilities and of course you can understand that until that has been resolved there will be some questions some uncertainty over what kind of trading environment the united kingdom can really provide julia you raised so many great points there and Boris not ruling out going to WTO rules if he has to ultimately but at least with this majority he's not in the thrall of the arch Brexiteers so we'll see what happens Melissa Bell in Brussels there thank you so much for that we're going to take a quick break here but up next good news for stocks good news for the currency too but how is Boris Johnson's landslide going down with the C-suite we'll discuss with the British Chambers of Commerce stay with us we're back in two Welcome back to a special edition of First Move Live from outside the UK Houses of Parliament. Just to remind you, we are expecting comments from Prime Minister Boris Johnson, fresh from his historic victory overnight. A huge majority, of course, for the UK Conservative Party. We will take you to that statement the moment it begins. But for now, let me give you a look at what Sterling is doing this morning, holding on to strong gains and UK stocks rallying as the Conservatives savour the general election win. UK bank stocks among some of the biggest gainers this morning, including RBS, currently up some 11%. Let's talk this through. Joining me now, Jerry Grimstone. He's senior advisor to Fenchurch Advisory and the former chairman of Barclays Bank and Standard Life. Fantastic to have you with us on the show. What are we seeing here in UK assets? Well, I think it's a relief. I mean, we've been stuck in a quagmire for the last, for the last three years. And the UK has been pretty much uninvestable during that period. People didn't know whether we were going to go to black or whether we were going to go to white. But now the future is clear. There's a massive relief. Oh, absolutely clear. Because the thing about the UK is once you have a large majority in Parliament, you're in power and you can get things and you can get things done. And what this country has lacked over the last two or three years is the ability to get things done. So I think business will be very excited once they absorb all the facts. You, you make a great point, the lack of checks and balances, actually, when you do have a party here that has such a significant majority here. But just very quickly on this, there's not just one side in the negotiation when it comes to a trade deal with the EU over the coming six months and then the next year. Do you believe that, that Boris has the capacity here to get an agreement within that time frame? You know him and you've travelled with him. You understand this man. Well, first of all, I think there's a massive desire on the other side of the channel to get this done as well. I mean, their business has been troubled by this in the same way that our business has. So now that we're where we are, everybody is going to want to get this settled. And I think people are underestimating the desire now to get things done. I am very confident this will be done during this year. Who is Boris Johnson? Because... We are going to see him probably in power now for a long time, to the point you were making five years, maybe even two, given the swing that we've seen in votes. You've travelled with him. You've seen him make deals. You've seen him talk to people. Just talk about the response that you've seen him get around the world and why this matters in particular now. Well, I think he's the most interesting of, of men. Just an interesting um, word, too. Yeah, <laughs> I, I went with him to India and people asked me, is, he, is this the King of England? <laughs> I was with him in China and people were asking, 
asking him, do you know Harry Potter? I was with him in the Gulf, and it was as if you were with Lawrence of Arabia. So he's a person who can adapt to situations very rapidly. He's much smarter than sometimes he likes to admit. Is he a soft Brexiteer? He's a pragmatic Brexiteer. I think he will strike whatever the best possible deal is. And negotiating and dealing, as you see with President Trump, this is a matter of guile. Nobody tells their opponent before you go into a negotiation what answer you want. Can he get a good deal out of the United States and Donald Trump? That's a very interesting question. Um, I think the United States may try and overplay their hand a bit. Um, Britain is a global country. Um, Britain likes dancing with a number of people. And Britain is going to look for trade deals, global deals, across a whole range of countries, including China, including the US, and of course, primarily including Europe. Very quickly, was it more powerful as part of the EU? Because it is a global country, but it's now a much smaller one in terms of striking these deals. I think our voice was suffocated in the EU. I think Britain doesn't like being told what to do. You should never forget that Britain is an island nation. <laughs> and an island nation has a special characteristics. And I think, I think we will be much more global. Boris is a globalist. Everything I've known and seen about him tells me he's a globalist. This is going to be a very exciting five years coming forward. Yes, I'm excited now. This is a good way to end the show. Jerry, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you for that. Jerry Grimstone, Senior Advisor of Fenchurch Advisory. Quick look at what we're seeing for the markets right now, remember, because this is not the only story. There are hopes now that we've got a phase one agreement between the United States and China. Of course, a big week for the United States, remember, NAFTA Mark II also agreed in US Congress as well. So a lot fueling the rally that we're seeing ultimately in uh, these markets, not just in the UK, of course, but in the United States and around the world too. We are, of course, counting down to that statement from Boris Johnson coming in the next few moments. We will take you there live to listen into what Boris has to say, what the future holds for the UK with a huge conservative majority. That's it for First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley, live outside the UK Houses of Parliament. Our coverage continues. Stay with CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.